Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I hope you've had a great week. I hope you um, have had a good week of, of uh, enjoying life, seeking the Lord, being a part of His plan. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about what it would require for renewal to happen in our lives, or what renewal looks like. And as a, we've been studying that, thinking about that, one of the things that I've done is gone back and read about some of the great renewals, revivals that have happened in the history of the world. And one of those happened in the 1730s and 1740s. Now, uh, anybody alive back then? Anybody around? None of us. All right, just making sure. So it's been a little while ago, right? In the 1730s, there, the 13 colonies were there, and you know a lot of people had come to seeking asylum for religious persecution, but the churches were not growing or developing. In fact, the church was in crisis. If you were to ask somebody in the 1730s in the original 13 colonies, hey, can you point us to a church that's really on fire for the Lord? That would have been difficult to find. Attendance was decreasing. There was a pastor at the time who um, said that it was a degenerate time marked by dullness of religion. And that the kids of that time, the youth of that time, he said, had trouble with night walking. I don't know what that means, but it was bad apparently. Tavern drinking and unholy practices with members of the opposite sex. That pastor, by the name, by the way, was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. There's his picture right there. And he began to pray fervently that God would do something to renew his church, the congregational church that he was a part of. In the spring of 1734, something happened that nobody in town wanted, nobody thought should happen. Suddenly, two young men, two boys, passed away. The community began to look for answers, and Jonathan Edwards began to preach and to pray that God would provide some sort of spark that would happen in his community. And that fall, so that happened in spring, so about five to six months later, during one of his services... When nobody had been walking an aisle, nobody had been getting saved, nobody had been asking for baptism. In one of his services, six people were saved. And one of those six was one of the most infamous women in town. In fact, Jonathan Edwards described her as someone who is the greatest of company keepers for the town's men. And her life so radically changed that people began to say, what is happening here? And that church went from six people being saved on one Sunday in a church that hadn't seen anybody saved in quite a time to 300 people being saved in six months in a town of 1,100. Almost 30% of the town was saved in six months. That was the spark that would lead to revival that impacted both sides of the Atlantic and saw over 300,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the interesting thing about that particular revival. 
Jonathan Edwards has become a well-known, I mean, he, you study him in American history because of the impacts of that revival. He's in history books. And when I was in high school, I remember we studied one of the sermons from that revival, from that awakening. And here's what's interesting about that to me is, some of you may have heard of this sermon, some of you may even know what I'm thinking of now. It is not, the title of it is not the most encouraging title in the history of the world. The title of the sermon that has become famous from this particular revival is, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he says things in that sermon like you out there right now are a sinner in the hands of an angry God and his hand is all that is keeping you from hell itself. He compares living our lives unaware of what's happening with our sin to being behind a dam that is holding waters behind it. And the waters are becoming angrier and angrier as God's wrath is building upon us. And at some point, if we do not come to faith in Jesus Christ, that dam will break and we will be overwhelmed. You see the... First great awakening in America. A revival that some scholars say has not been matched in the history of our country, which is sad that we've gone almost 300 years without having another one like it. it was built upon a call for people to recognize their sin and called it out specifically and run from it. Sometimes our understanding and our thoughts about sin have become almost common, normal. It's just a part of life. Even punchlines and jokes. And yet scripture makes it very clear that if we want renewal to happen in our midst, that there has to be a fresh recognition of the sin in our lives and a turning from it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, says this. For even if I grieved you with my letter, and we'll talk about that more in a minute as some background. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire. To clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray that even as we open your word today, that you would remind us again of our need and our desperation for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so who wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians? Paul, right? How many letters did Paul write to the Corinthians? Yeah, that's a trick question, right? 
How many do we have in our Bible? Two. He probably at least wrote four. All right? And what we have here is Paul explaining that one of those letters grieved them. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians a lots of times. Here's the reason. The Corinthians had lots of problems. In fact, they have been described by many as the most problematic New Testament church. At least that we know of. There may have been more problematic New Testament churches, but this one was really bad. Okay, And we know of it because Paul wrote it and we have scripture of him writing letters to it. In 1 Corinthians, he addresses issue after issue. In fact, you can look at kind of the, the way that passage or the way that that book comes along is basically every chapter Paul is saying, now concerning now concerning, which means, hey, to answer this question or to speak to this issue. And there are all kinds of issues in there that are bad stuff. There were great divisions among people. People were arguing about who baptized who and whose they were allegiance to. They were lining themselves up with different leaders within the church. There was a rift and division. And one side didn't like the other. And one accused another of not being as faithful as they need to be. And all of that, Paul says, you got to get that together. They had problems with the Lord's Supper. You see, in that days, they were doing the Lord's Supper as a part of a meal. They would have a meal together. And then at the end of the meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. What was happening in their church, apparently, is that the wealthy people in town who didn't have to work the whole day would celebrate the Lord's Supper and their meal together early, and they would eat everything there, in fact, get drunk on the wine that was used for it, and then when those that had to work all day and the less fortunate would arrive, there would be nothing left for them to partake in. There was sexual issues throughout the whole church. Including, in chapter 5, he calls out and says, It has been reported to me that there is a man among you who is with his stepmother, and you accept it completely as it is. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. We, he mentions in 1 Corinthians a previous letter, so there's a letter before 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians that we have, he mentions a bitter letter. Because apparently the issues that were a part of what happened in the first Corinthians letter did not get solved. And he wrote a nasty letter to them. So much so that they were shocked and grieved by it. And Paul says, I regretted it for a moment. But then I realized that it was necessary. And here's the reason Paul realized it was a good thing, the bad letter he sent. is because repentance is a good thing. And he says to them in this passage, I now rejoice. I, I did regret it. Since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved. I'm not happy that you were upset. I'm not happy that it hurt you. I'm not glad that it went to the core of who you are. I'm not rejoicing over the fact that you were harmed. What I'm rejoicing over is because that grief led you to true repentance. One of the hardest parts of pastoring a church is realizing that there are times that I'm going to say things 
biblical spiritual things is my prayer from God's word, from God's mind to you that may hurt. Because none of us like to be called out in things that we're doing that are apart from the Lord. None of us like to be called out. And especially now we live in a world where we are told that there really is no such thing as sin. It's just your own personal preference or how you really are inside. And there are times when, to be honest, if I fail in a way in that, I fail by stepping back a little bit and not pushing forward as harshly as we need to because there has to be a moment when we look in the mirror and we see us for who we are and because of that we go towards repentance because only repentance leads us to the Lord. In fact, repentance is what leads us to the Lord throughout the entire Bible. It's a whole Bible concept. If you look in the Old Testament at the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, their main message is repent. They plagiarize each other. Repent. Hey, you're doing terrible things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. Jeremiah, hey, you're doing terrible things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. Hosea, hey, we're doing terrible things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. Ezekiel, we're doing terrible things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. Sermon after sermon, book after book. It is throughout the whole thing is, hey, we're doing terrible things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. It's like they basically get up and go, good morning, everyone. Repent. Let's pray. Some of you are like, can we have that sermon every week, pastor? Because it's over and over and over again. You say, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament God. That's Old Testament judgmental God. You get to the New Testament. The forerunner of Jesus is John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist's message to those that are around? Repent. Repent. Quit it. Stop it. Hey, you're doing lots of bad things. Stop it. Come back to the Lord. Peter, first sermon after the resurrected Christ on The day of Pentecost gets up and what does he tell all those that are gathered? He says, listen, this is what happened. You killed Jesus. Jesus was the prophet of God and he is killed, but he came back from the dead because it was God's plan all along. And now here's your response. Your response is to do what? It is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. You're like, well, great. That's Peter and John the Baptist. As much as we admire them, what did Jesus say about it? Well, one of the interesting things is we have a report of Jesus speaking directly to churches in Revelation. And in Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the churches, his common refrain is repent. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent. You have forsaken your first love. Repent. Go back. Hey, here's what you're doing wrong. You've fallen away from the Lord. Come back and follow him. And throughout the entire scripture, not only is repentance good for us, not only is it a whole Bible concept, here is the reality that there can be no renewal without repentance. Repentance precedes renewal. And over the last few weeks, as we've talked in this service on Sunday morning, and as I've heard and had discussions with many of you, we feel 
I feel the Lord is in the midst of doing some really amazing things, some things that are different than even in my 16 plus years here that I've seen before, seeing relationships restored and people talking openly about some things that need to change in their life and in our church. And I believe that we are on that precipice of God doing some really, really cool things. But here's what I want to tell you. We will only get so far without repentance. And you and I cannot control the movement of God in our lives. We cannot control when God decides to move in a way that we cannot explain. We cannot control that. We cannot schedule a week for that. Then say, God, we're going to be here from Sunday to Wednesday. We're expecting you to show up at that time. We can't do that. We can't say, God, hey, we're, we're ready. It's 2024. This is the time. It's the year of renewal. That's the word you gave to our pastor. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. We're trusting that, Lord. So, Lord, show up. We can't manipulate God in that way. But here's what I can guarantee you. When God decides to show up, His movement will be directly tied to our repentance. One pastor says that repentance is the funnel through which renewal flows. It is what focuses and shapes the renewal that happens in our lives. And you can begin to feel God moving in and among your life. You can begin to feel God moving in and among our church. But without repentance, that's all it'll be, is a short-lived feeling, not actual change. So here's what I want to do. I originally had a sermon that was about an hour and a half long, and I decided to cut it in half, and all God's people said, I got a hearty, that's one of the best amens I've gotten in a long time, I'm in together. So this week we're going to talk about what repentance is, according to Paul, according to Scripture. And we're going to do that just in three parts, what repentance looks like in three parts. And then next week we're going to talk about what does it look like when we actually repent? What are the evidences that repentance is actually happening and we're not just playing a game with the Lord? Repentance, first of all, is seeing and declaring sin for what it really is. For recognizing sin for what it is. I read this week about a revival in Canada in the 1970s. And it started in a church that was a small little community church where two brothers had become at odds with each other. It was over something silly, as most conflicts are, especially conflicts in the family. They would walk in on opposite sides of the church. They would walk out on opposite sides of the church. They never crossed their paths. Some people in the church didn't even know they were mad at each other, but they were. The pastor one day decided that it was time to figure something out with this. The wives had come to him and said, this is causing harm in our family. And so he got them together at the, together at the church and they went to the basement where nobody else would know what was going on. And they sat in the basement, the pastor, one of the other uh, deacons in the church, and then these two guys. 
And they begin to just spell out, hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. And one of the brothers looked at the other and said, I just think it's time we end this. And the other one looked at him and said, I know it is about time you realized it is all your fault. Aren't you glad none of those conversations ever happened like that with you, right? And that sparked an argument, as you can imagine. That a couple of people who were in a different part of the church said you could hear the walls shaking. Two days later, one of the brothers had an encounter with the Lord. He was the one that had said it was about time for you to realize this is all your fault. And he said, he walked into the pastor's office, he called and asked his brother to show up, and he said, what the Lord showed me immediately is that for too long, what I had been calling self-preservation and just good old-fashioned pride was in fact the biblical word of pride that is hated by God. That my strong-headedness is sin. That my stubbornness is sin. And I repent of that today. That church experienced revival when those two brothers sang a duet together on Sunday morning and declared their story before the church. And suddenly, in that province, revival began to break out from that church. One thing that happens sometimes in church and in our lives is we think character flaws are just character flaws that aren't a big deal when oftentimes there's sin that needs to be addressed. And sometimes we even dismiss another people, oh, that's just how he is. That's just who she is. She's always been like that. Sometimes we excuse really bad behavior by saying things like that and not recognizing sin for what it is in their lives or in our lives. Well, I've just always been grumpy. I've always been one that uh, just if I, if I saw something that, 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 that I didn't agree with, I just had to say something about it. I've never been able to hold my tongue. And we say that sometimes. People go, you know, joke about it. Well, she just always says whatever's on her mind. When Scripture clearly states that part of following Jesus is knowing when to hold our tongue. Right? Some of you are looking at me like, I don't like where this is going, Pastor. Right? And the first step is us saying that sin is sin. There are three major categories of sin in our lives. Now they all start with P, so it's a good old-fashioned Southern Baptist sermon. There's pride, there's pleasure, and there's priorities. Pride, excited about our position, or our prestige, or our power. This is one of those that gets trouble, gets churches in trouble more than just about any other where someone has a program that they're invested in and they think if that's not taken care of, then something has gone wrong. And maybe it needs to be taken care of, but they're so proud about it that their pride gets in the way of what's actually happening. Or two people that aren't willing to say, you know what, let me listen to what they say or let me understand what's going on here or let me admit that I was wrong in this place because my pride won't let me causes rifts and divisions to cause Cracks within the foundations of the church. Pleasure. Physical pleasure. Finding it in 
a relationship, finding it in inappropriate places. Pleasure in itself is not wrong. God created us for that. But pleasure sought in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people is wrong. We have an epidemic in our society of people who are lonely and are trying to figure out a way to get those dopamine levels, those feel-good levels in their brain filled, and they are doing whatever they can to do that. And they will seek it out through the excitement of something like video games or through internet pornography, or they'll seek it out through substance abuse and doling the pain. And finding a way just to get a little bit, just a little bit of good feeling in their life. Pleasure through stuff. Just stuff on stuff on stuff. And then priorities. What do we let drive us in our lives? What controls us? What controls our emotions? What controls our finances? What controls our schedule? What controls what we do and who we are? And it's our life all about worshiping the Lord, walking with the Lord, and working for the Lord. Lord, we have other priorities that are taking precedence over it. The first step in true repentance is that we have to call sin what it is. Recognize it in our own lives for what it is. And the second thing is that we have heartfelt, genuine sorrow over our sin. We're not dismissive of it. We don't placate it. We're not just saying it's okay. We don't try to rub a balm over it that maybe it'll feel better in a little bit. We have genuine, heartfelt sorrow over our sin. That we recognize that the Lord is there and we have shut Him off or attempted to. We have attempted to walk away. We have attempted to get Him out of our lives. We have attempted to live under our own strength. And because of that, we are in a place where sin has taken over areas of our lives. And we are genuinely sorrowful, mournful, and we cry out in that sorrow. I've told y'all before when I was in, it's just always when I think about this, I picture one, I picture a child in Fort Worth, Texas. When I was in seminary, I worked at a fine arts preschool. Because when you look at me, you think fine arts preschool teacher, I know. And I worked in the afternoons. After I'd done class in the morning, I'd work in the afternoon shift, except on Mondays. I worked almost all day on Monday, but I work afternoon shift. Susan was teaching in a local elementary or intermediate school. And one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you are a preschool teacher is that kids have varying degrees of crying. Right? There's the... There's the, I just fell and it really didn't hurt, but I want someone to notice that I fell, cry. There's the, I just fell and I took some skin off and it really does hurt crying. But the worst cry that I experienced was one particular child. And this was on a day when we didn't have, it was, a, it was someday we didn't have school at the seminary. Maybe in the summer when I was working like a full day, and I was there not just for pickup, which is what I normally was there, but I was there for drop-off. 
These kids were the kids of some of the wealthiest people in Fort Worth. I mean, we had, we had some kids that had security detail at the preschool. These are also the kids that would often get dropped off as soon as the doors opened and were picked up right before they closed. And one of the th- jobs you had when the child came in in the morning, because I wasn't the lead teacher, I was the teaching assistant, one of my jobs on drop-off duty was to be the distractor. Which meant to be the one that got the child somewhere else, playing with blocks or looking at this or reading a book, so that the mom and dad could leave without the child noticing. Get them involved in something, right? And then get their attention there. There's one child I remember in particular that I was working that day, and I don't remember what day of the week it was, I don't remember what was going on, but I was distracting, and I was doing an unbelievable job of distracting. It's as good of a distraction as you could be. And then he saw something, and he said, Hey, look, Mommy, look what I found. And he turned around, and he realized his mama wasn't there anymore. And I saw a different kind of cry than I'd ever seen before in my life. It was the wailing of a child who at that moment didn't care who saw it. That ought to be the disposition of our heart when we realize that we have walked away from God's intention. Wailing and we don't care who sees it. And the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Wail. Repentance is recognizing sin for what it is. It's the heartfelt sorrow that comes from recognizing that sin. And then the last thing is this. Repentance results in behavior change. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, about the results of repentance. How can we tell true repentance is there? But it's not just that we're like, yeah, God, I'm so sorry about that. And then we're done. It is. And here's what's different and going to be different in my life. There are examples throughout Scripture of true repentance. David, after Bathsheba, Psalm 51. Paul, walking down the road to Damascus, literally blinded, goes a different direction. But perhaps the most famous of it is a parable Jesus told in the prodigal son. And it's interesting because the moment of repentance happens in a pigsty. And it says... That he looked at the food that the pigs were eating and he longed for that. And it says in there, one of my favorite phrases in scripture, it says he came to his senses. In other words, he recognized the reality of the sin he had committed. He expressed and felt extreme sorrow because of it. And it says he got up and decided to go home. That is a picture of repentance. And I just wonder how many of us in this room realize that we could be holding back the movement of God in this place because we have yet to come to our senses. And my prayer is that we would be a people who would recognize the reality and the seriousness of the sin in our lives, that we would feel sorrow for that, and that we would allow the Lord to change our behavior in order to return to Him.
so that when he is ready to spend his time and energy and when he is willing to send his renewal that is unexplainable in our lives, we have opened the channel to let that flood happen. May that be who we are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this moment that we would be willing to do whatever you ask and that our response to you would be exactly what you desire from us, that your will would be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.